0: Uh, Listen, if you have a Bible, open it up to 2 Samuel. It's going to be a great passage for us. Y'all thought that was my sermon, didn't you? Come on. No, this is going to be helpful for you, I think, especially if you struggle um, with assurance how you are right now, whether God really loves you how you are right now. I think, and this is my opinion, you can have your own, I put this passage, 2 Samuel 9, I would put this in probably my top five passages that I think are the warmest and kindest passages that we have in the Bible. I find it to be incredibly warm and inviting. All right, 2 Samuel 9, the backstory It for you, David's a new king, freshly minted, What kings did back then when they were new to the throne is they would start to surround themselves with people that they could trust. That's what I would do too. So you load up Congress and Senate. They didn't really have that, right? But they'd have these key positions all around and they would put their friends, they would put competent people, but people that they could trust. And then, not that David did this, but back in the ancient world, they would also start to flush and purge all of their enemies, relatives, and friends, right? So let's say the last king. The last king, whoever it was, everyone would be exterminated family, friends, distant cousins, staunch supporters. They would all get flushed out because the king, the new king, would be afraid of a reprisal. You don't want, you know, King Saul's cousin Larry coming in and smothering you in your sleep or cutting your brake lines on your car or something like that, which could happen, right? So you would just get rid of them all and you're starting over, blank slate. I've got my friends close to me. I've got those I can trust around me, and I've gotten rid of everyone else. Right? So, in David's case, that would be King Saul, the king right before him, which was the first king. Now, King Saul had a son, Jonathan, and they were best friends. Right? That's where we're at. That's where we're picking up. Both Saul and Jonathan are dead. David is the new king. Verse 1 of chapter 9. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him? The king said to him, "'Where is he?' And Ziba said to the king, "'He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar.' Then king David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, "'Mephibosheth,' and he answered, "'Behold, I am your servant.' And David said to him, "'Do not fear, for I will show you kindness.'" For the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. And you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for such a dead dog as I? Verse 13. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both feet. Okay. All right, Mephibosheth is adopted for all intents, right, into the king's closest circle, his very own dinner table, right, sitting in seats that were meant for friends and family and all the trusted people. And he was brought closer in this moment than almost anyone else in the kingdom. And he wasn't brought close because he was adorable or impressive. He was lame in both feet, it says, he didn't really offer very much. Not an impressive guy. He had to be carried around. He wasn't a powerful, mighty figure, not, not an influencer. In fact, he also carried around this stigma of being of the bloodline of David's enemy. He probably thought this was his last day on earth. I mean, I guarantee you, when the servants went to go get him and he say, hey, the king wants to see you, he probably thought that that was the long green mile. He was walking to his death in that moment. There should be no reason that the king would not take him out. But he was approved. He was approved, not because he was loved directly, but because David loved another, Jonathan. Jonathan was loved by David. Now, because of that, Mephibosheth is safe and loved and close, and now he's part of the crew from then on. Now, listen, this is a cool story on its own. I mean, it stands on its own legs, and yet it reaches far beyond this time and space. That's the beauty of this story now. It's not just about them. It's about you, this story about you and your kind ruler. This is a picture for us today of the gospel of adoption. That's what we're going to talk about, the gospel of adoption, the doctrine of adoption. In this gospel, it is us. We offer nothing but liability. We are not impressive. We need to be carried around. We don't have anything that we really bring to the table. And we have a family past of rebellion. The family tree we come from is not impressive either. In fact, our family tree was warring against our new ruler. And yet we are brought close and placed in a seat, sitting next to a king, not because of his direct love for us immediately, but because of his affection for his son, Jesus. See, we're invited to the table of Jesus, grafted in, as we see in the book of Hebrews, adopted in, never to lose our spot. We'll never be alone again in this gospel. And we don't even have to be impressive We don't have to be adorable and lovable. This is good news. This is good news. This passage is far more than just this cool thing that David did for Mephibosheth. It's about our king adopting us into a royal bloodline where we receive the full benefits that the royal family receives. We get everything that the family gets. And my favorite part, our chair is never moved away from the table. It's always there see, we've been working really hard since the beginning of 2020 to show how multifaceted and textured the gospel story is. Not just to save us, but to sustain us on a daily basis. Because it's just the greatest story ever told. right? And it's told from different angles, as we've worked really hard to show you. right? Each angle ministering and shepherding us a little bit differently, but all of them lifting up this beautiful view of God being favorable towards, in Mephibosheth's word, dead dogs being favorable and graceful towards dead dogs that don't really bring anything to the table. And he does this all by the power of his Holy Spirit through the person of Jesus. And we just can't wear this story out. And it's just because it's about Jesus and we can't wear Jesus out. He's indefatigable. He cannot be undone or pushed aside. All creation must reckon with him or worship him. Now, two weeks ago, Sean Angel stood up here on stage and preached his first sermon and he showed us the doctrine of what it means to be a new creation, the gospel of a new creation. I've done the best I can to show you the gospel of redemption and the gospel of reconciliation and how they're different and the gospel of how we are unified with Christ in union with Christ. We've talked a little bit about how that gospel changes us individually, how it collects us as a people, how it frees us to be authentic and how we carry the gospel to the city, how it even handles things and places and culture and even the cosmos that we live in. And yet there is still more. There is still more. Let's look at Galatians 4, and we'll see a little bit more of this doctrine. And Galatians 4 is our main text, so feel free to turn there. If not, you can stay in 2 Samuel. This will be on the screen as well. Galatians 4, verse 4. This is Paul, and he says this, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Okay. Listen, it's exceedingly thoughtful and kind of God to adopt us like this, isn't it? I mean, like Mephibosheth here, we've been relocated from a bad family situation into a much better family situation. We offer nothing but liability and rebellion, and he gives us everything. That's the trade. In fact, he brings us to his inner circle, his table, gives us a seat, pulls it close to him. It's a place where we finally belong. Finally, we belong. And we're never going to get voted off the island. That's my favorite part. So many things disintegrate our family units today. Nothing disintegrates this family unit, nothing breaks it apart. I don't think there's anything more encouraging to me than to know that I am a child of God and I'm included in a family that I'll never get booted out of. That's a high encouragement, especially in a day and age where family or being fathered is so distorted. I mean, an integrated family unit with a father present in the home might be the most endangered relational unit we have in society today, right? Here's the rough math just of this, this school, right? As of the time I put this together, there's 1,453 students at West High School, right? Statistically, one out of four of them are going to graduate from this school with no father in the home. It's 25%, right? It's 363 students. That's enough to fill this entire floor, every chair. Right? It's a lot of kids, man. And that demo is a very high-risk demographic. 63% of all suicides come from fatherless homes. That just seems too too crazy to be true. How about this one? 90% of runaways come from fatherless homes. Nine out of ten. 71% 71% of dropouts come from fatherless homes. 75% of addicts come from fatherless homes. I'm t- this is just me. When I read statistics like that, and they're so lopsided, I just want to throw a flag and say, I don't know if I'm buying that. But when the father vanishes from the family unit, man, the consequences are deep. Even people who don't, don't believe in God struggle with the whole Jesus thing. They'll even admit that much of society hinges on whether or not a father is in the home. Forget whether it's a good father or not. That's a different topic. But just a father in the home. And I think even more importantly for you and for me, our view of an earthly father does speak directly into how we see our heavenly father. Okay? And this is no mistake. God is brilliant in giving us a father. He could have thought of anything, by the way. He could have... Thought of any way for us to raise each other, he's the one that he's the one that built everything. It's like I said in a marriage ceremony yesterday, I got to do marriage is God's idea, dads, moms that's God's idea. God could have come up with anything, he, he wasn't limited, and yet he comes up with a dad. Right? God brilliantly knew that we would need somebody to communicate attributes that God himself has. Now, listen, this is how it works. I had a dad, he was a good dad. It wasn't a perfect dad though, right? So it changed and altered how I would see God as I grew up, especially as a college student. I would start to visualize how God was a father based on how my dad was a father. Now, had my dad beat me or abused me or cheated on my mom or left our family, it would have radically edited even further how I would have seen God growing up. It would have changed everything. But God brilliantly knows that we need a stand in a father to raise us, to show us how to navigate this broken world, trusting in God. Vance Fry, who's an editor with Focus on the Family, he says it this way, I like his way better than mine. He says, yes, God was the powerful creator, the source of wisdom, truth, and love, But he wasn't going to be there to help a kid with his math homework or throw a football around or build a doghouse together. The architect of snowflakes and solar systems wasn't available for taking 10-year-old boys out for breakfast to talk about what sex means. When a dad vanishes, it disrupts everything. A father's love, it's hard to replace. So we might be quick to say God looks like our dads, but it's actually the other way around the other way around. We should see God as the actual father, the literal father. The essence of fatherhood is wrapped up in how our God is a father. This means fathering is not defined by what you grew up with. It's not. Fathering is defined by our God in heaven, but it is translated Through the heavy voices around us, whether it's your natural dad or your high school coach or your mentor or your youth pastor or your grandpa, whatever that heavy masculine voice was that you would say is the fatherly voice that raised you, some way translated these attributes of God to you. So it's not that God has similarities to our father, but that our fathers have similarities to our perfect father. And listen, I say that knowing that some of you in here had crappy dads. I mean, seriously, when I say that our dads weren't perfect, I know that's being generous in some of your cases. Some of you had some heartbreaking experiences with dad. And so the essence of fatherhood isn't something that you're usually excited to think about or talk about or read about. Even now, days like Father's Day is probably a little bit different for you, right? A little bit more irrelevant or insignificant. Maybe you've had a hard time seeing or interacting with God as a father. And why wouldn't you, right? Why wouldn't you? You see God as judge and as king and as creator and as savior, but not father because that role is somewhat damaged in your mind's eye. By the way, I do believe that the Holy Spirit loves to and longs to reconstruct and reformat how you see the essence of being fathered, right? Because this is what the Holy Spirit loves to do. Remember, in the series we did, One of the things that the Holy Spirit loves and longs to do, one of his primaries in his role, is to point Jesus to us, to show us Christ more clearly, even as Christ is the centerpiece of our gospel. And listen, we live in a society that's ready to hear a gospel like this. I mean, our Western society, our culture loves the idea of adoption, loves it. I want you to consider all the fictional characters that we grew up with that were adopted, right? Right? Fictional ones, Little Annie, Tarzan, Mowgli, Sleeping Beauty, Alvin and the Chipmunks, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Luke Skywalker, Princess Leia, all adopted. I haven't even gotten to the Marvel franchise yet, right? Here we go. Superman, I know that's not Marvel, don't freak you out. Superman, <laughs> Spider-Man, Robin, Loki, Iron Man, look it up. They're all adopted. My favorite's Buddy the Elf, adopted, right? (laughs) Why are they all adopted? They're fictional. You could write in anything you want for their background. Why do we say... That one doesn't get a mother and a father. Why do we say that one is in a bad family situation? This is why. We love stories where people are ripped out of horrible situations and relocated into positive ones where they were not loved and now they are. Where they were unsafe and now they are safe. Where they were not welcome and now they are welcome. We love it. We gravitate towards it. And this is my favorite part of the gospel of adoption. It means that God is not going to change his mind about us. Man, some of you, if you hear anything, you need to hear that. You need to know that your father, if you are in him, he is in you, and you are a Christian today, you need to know that he is excited about you and he's excited to see you. I know he always sees you, but he's excited to be with you. You need to know that he doesn't regret you, that he's not embarrassed by you, he's not ashamed of you, He isn't waiting for you to become lovable or impressive. It's not a small matter for us to be loved as we are, is it? As we are. Statistically, I I think many of you wonder if your place in God's family is all that secure as you are. As you are. You wonder if maybe you can blow it bad enough to be unadopted or re-orphaned. Or maybe it's too late. Maybe that's why you're here. Maybe you're trying to become lovable again. I did that for 14 years. The first 14 years of my Christian life was spent on, can I make myself more likable, lovable, and impressive than I was yesterday? Because then maybe God will smile and welcome me to the table. That is a horrible way to live your Christian life. It's an unbiblical one way too. It also denies the gospel at every angle. Or maybe you feel like you do have a father, but he's kind of stuck with you. He's not really happy about it. Maybe he's willing to love you if you just improve a little bit, just a skosh, right? Maybe he's measuring your behavior, impatiently waiting for you to be a little less of a loser. Maybe that's why you're here, right? Friends, there's no greater fear in this world than the one of being cosmically rejected by God. There's just not. The fear of God looking at you and saying, nah, not yet. Not impressive enough almost, that is the worst. Martin Luther says it, well, he says it a long time ago. He says, to deal effectively with life's daily fears, we must first deal with life's ultimate fear. This is what he thinks the ultimate fear is, to die without a place or godly acceptance. My ultimate anxiety, he goes on to say, is my fear that I will never find peace with God, never be accepted by God. I agree with Luther. I think life's ultimate fear is you are not welcome here. You're not welcome. There's no room for you at this table. This is not a place for you. That's why I love this gospel of adoption because it's not that you're just judiciously acquitted of crimes. You're also warmly invited. There's a place for you. A family that's never going to push you out. You see, your gospel doesn't just have light, but it's got a lot of heat to it. You're not just clean, but you were invited. You were welcome. You're not just a new legal status, but you're also the apple of his eye. Because our Father God adores his kids. doesn't resent them. There's a problem with all of this. As we've already seen, our view of our family is family in heaven. And our Father God is skewed by what we have on earth. It does, it, it jumbles it up a little bit. Even the best family situations don't really meet all of the deepest longings that we have. It's impossible for it to. I mean, I have a dad. I adore my kids, but I am wildly imperfect and inconsistent. And when push comes to shove, I just don't do that accurate of a job of painting this perfect view of God. And you're no different. We're all imperfectly people or imperfect that we're raised imperfectly in imperfect circumstances and we live and we work and we play and then we meet other people that were raised imperfectly by imperfect people under imperfect circumstances and then we marry right into these get it imperfect marriages where we live in perfect lives under imperfect situations and then we make little babies who are imperfect and I know some of you think your babies are perfect and that's what we tell you but they're not your babies are not perfect they're imperfect Over time, what happens when we live in this imperfect place is we just start to reason with ourselves, right? And we're never really going to be accepted as we are. We have to change to be accepted in this world. And in order to change, we're going to have to strive. We have to strive to be welcome in this place, especially with the heavy voices. The heavier the voice, the more we got to change. The more we have to be approved. Yeah, we'll try to get approval from our peers, from our friends, man, the heavy voices, the dad voices, pastors, coaches, mentors, bosses. Here's the truth for you and for me, no one's really gonna ever meet these needs. In fact, by trying to get them from people, get this love and this approval from people, we stand a great chance of sabotaging and breaking these very relationships, right? Because what we do is is we place ourselves in the center of the relationship where we can't serve any longer, we have to be served. We can't love sacrificially, if we need selfishly. You can't do that at the same time. You can't ever love anyone sacrificially while you demand something selfishly at the same time. They, they, they can't coexist. And so we break the relationships around us. And this scales, I mean, just think on a smaller scale. Social media is a huge proof of this. Our posts sometimes, sometimes they can be nothing more than just a stack of applications looking for people to approve us. Looking for someone to say, I like what I see, right? I love what I see. And the more approval we get, the more our tank fills. And we all know this because I harp on it all the time. But isn't it true that some likes feel a little bit better than others? Don't act like you don't go and look and see who liked your stuff. You know you do. And some people, when they like your thing or they hit love or thumb or heart or whatever the app is that you're using, you see it and you're like, oh, cool, they saw that. But when some people hit it, it resonates a lot deeper, doesn't it? So we crank up the applications. Do you like the way I look? Do you like what I've made? Do you like my ab routine? Like how I take my wife on the date? Like the breakfast I made for my family? Like how I dance? Like the couch I made out of scrap wood? Like the garden? Look at the dirt on my hands. Look at me, what if I put a filter on it? Like how I look today? What about flashback me? What about me today? What about me on Halloween? What about me today? What if I put another filter on it? What if I put it in a story? And it just goes up and up and up and up. We are looking for people to love us. This is what I want you to imagine. I want you to imagine Mephibosheth returning home after this encounter. Remember, he thought he was going to die. And he's going home. Do you think he cared who rejected him as he turned down his block? Yeah, not likely. Not likely. Do you think he lost any sleep over the lack of welcome he got? Probably not. Probably did not. Probably didn't wilt when people did not approve of him. We have another problem. And it's the problem that we feel like maybe God will change his mind. Maybe he will dismiss me. It's the feeling of being disowned by God. This is a heavy one for people in the church. I know that we know theologically that salvation is something that God gives as a matter of grace. It's a grace mo- moment for us. And it's when we trust him and even that faith to trust him is a gift in and of itself so we can't earn it. We all say that and we all believe that. We know deep inside that the Bible says that no one no one knows God just because they're impressive. No one is Given eternity with God, just because they're impressive, we all know that. We all say that all the time. But we feel like we could lose it. But let me tell you, if God did not adopt you because you were adorable, He's not going to unadopt you because you act unadorably. He's not going to do it. And this is especially true because He saw who you were before you were born. Before you were born, this is fascinating the timing of God's gospel. I'm going to put this on the screen and read it to you. You can stay where you're at. This is in Ephesians 1. This is Paul speaking to a different church. And he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's the treasure house right there. That's royalty. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love, He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he blessed us in the beloved. Paul says, listen, we were adopted before we were born. We were adopted before the world was born. That's amazing. His act, it precedes our first breath. His pursuit of us, He filed adoption papers before the stars were cast into the sky. And what did he see when he found us? We were dead dogs. That's what we look like. Handicapped with sin and rebellion. Bad family tree. That had to be Mephibosheth's posture here. Hey, there's nothing to see here. Nothing to see. He's just not an impressive guy. Right? Probably didn't even have an Instagram account. Let's face it. Nothing to post, right? He probably had one, but just to snoop on other people. But he didn't post on his Instagram account. It's not impressive. I mean, even his name means shame. That's what Mephibosheth means. Man of shame. Friends, I'll be honest. When it comes to the gospel, if God does not seat villains at his own table, then the gospel is not good news at all. Listen, if God changes his mind and decides to disown us down the road, the gospel's not good news at all. If God is just waiting for you to improve, If he's waiting for you to scrub yourself to look a little bit more impressive over time, then the gospel's not good news at all. But our gospel is good news. He adopts us when we are dirty and full of shame with absolutely nothing to offer him. So let me ask you, what would it look like to live in the light of adoption, where you are adored and yet can never lose that affection? To live in the light of this. What would it look like for you to live as if there was nothing to prove and no one to impress? Boy, that would be a dream, wouldn't it? I mean, now when you read the Gospels or even the, the New Testament beyond the Gospels, the letters, the epistles, you'll see Paul having moments of this where you can tell that guy just doesn't care what people think of him. Jesus, though, the entire scope of the Gospels, all four will show you a version of Jesus where every once in a while, every once in a while, it's almost cringeworthy how much he does not care what people think about that moment. It's almost as if in some moments he's trying to get people to unsubscribe from him. Like he's trying quite hard for it, right? And I'm sure team Jesus felt the same. I'm sure there were moments where James leaned over to Peter and said, hey, can someone get control of him? Like I know what he meant. I, when he said that you must eat his body and drink his blood, we know what he meant. We've had that lesson before. But he needs a nap or a Snickers bar or something. But he said that you have to eat his body and drink his blood, and now people are freaking out. We need to help him right now. Jesus doesn't care. (laughs) He just rides above the waves of approval and disapproval. The elites of the world couldn't add anything to his love tank, and they couldn't take anything away either. He just struts around, glides around as the happiest man who has ever lived. It's crazy. We miss this because of whatever British version of Jesus you saw on TV growing up. But you need to know, yes, he was pure. Yes, he did some great things, and he was holy. He was also happy. He laughed a lot. He is the happiest man who ever lived, ever, ever. He basked in the radiance and the warmth of the love of God his Father. He lived and he spoke as one who needed nothing from mankind. The heaviest voice in his life was his Father God. He was content and he was satisfied in that. And I know it's easy right now to say, yeah, but that was Jesus. That was, that was Jesus, though. Sure but he adopted us into the same family. That's why Paul calls him the firstborn among many brothers. He's the firstborn among us. That means he was adopting us into the same family with the same blessings, the same legal status, the same dinner table, the same tight proximity. We have the same freedom as well. This is why Paul says in our Galatians 4 text, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son than an heir through God. Listen, you are way beyond ever being dismissed and disowned and put out. Nothing can separate God's love from you. Nothing can change his mind regarding his children, nothing. Let me just tell you, that is fathering. That is the essence of fathering. This is why I believe this gospel application it's going to be more and more relevant as the years go on, as families become more and more fractured, right? We will see more people live and work and play with no idea of what the essence of fathering even looks like. That's going to be on us, church. And We have to be fluent in this. I mean, just think about it for your own life right now, even looking at the people that orbit around you who are far from Jesus, but they have this hope of approval and being welcomed in their life right? I mean, when the rubber meets the road, how can you tell this beautiful gospel of adoption in a way that resonates with them? How can you do it? Maybe you're in here and that's you. Maybe you know I'm far from God. I'd like to know that. How does it matter for me? I think the first thing that you have to do whenever you're sitting with someone or you're getting to know someone and you're living life on life with people who are far from Christ, can they see that they are trapped and need to be relocated? Can they see that they're in a bad situation You know, that's the first step of evangelism. It's just their ability to view. As we've said, the Puritans would call it sight of sin. Do they have it? This is what Paul says to Ephesians, the Ephesians in chapter 2. He's reminding them. He's like, and remember, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. That was you following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh. He's reminding them, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This was you, this was me, this was us. And then God shows us that we are in a bad place and that is us. Can they see it? Can your friends see this? Those around you, can they see their need for a rescue? Right? It's part of the gospel discussions we need to be having is helping them see the idols that they're enslaved to and showing them that they are in a bad place. This is where we have to begin a lot of times. Otherwise, you're just telling them about a really, really good first century Jewish rabbi. <laughs> and sometimes when we evangelize people, that's where we start. Hey, here's an old rabbi I'd like to tell you about. You should give your life to him, right? And they don't, they're, they're, they're thinking, I'm fine. I don't need anything. My life is working out quite well. If they see no need for rescue, show them that those who are there serving are no gods at all, in Paul's words, and they are ruining them. Because this is what an idol does. An idol always promises a satisfied life, but it's never able to deliver. And listen, some of you in here right now, you might be far from Jesus, and let me just tell you this is what they're whispering to you the idols. And they usually show up in the form of addictions, okay? It says, You're almost there. It says, Keep trying, you're almost there. One more drink. One more hit, one more look online, one more overburdened work week, one more minute, one more dollar, one more. You're almost there, almost there, and then all of your dreams will come true. You just got to give a little more. And when we give, that's called worship. That's what an idol does, asking for more and more, never delivering. So sometimes you just have to ask the people around you in your life, what has that ever given you? What has it ever delivered to you? Definitely not satisfaction and contentment, or else you wouldn't be chasing anymore, right? One of the things I love about listening to sports radio here in Knoxville is when people call in, sometimes how passionate they get. I've lived in some different sports markets before. (laughs) In the last decade here, I'm telling you, I've lived in a, in a bunch of really cool places with a lot of rabbit sports bases. This is, this is a different level here. It's just a different level. And sometimes I think, I wish I had like a special phone where I could call the person that's calling the station, right? That's what I'd like to do is just ring that guy. I don't care about the station. I want to call this guy that's talking and say, hey, listen, what have they ever done for you? Like what have they ever done for you? Like, if you quit watching, if Joe Bob Cooter, if you quit watching them play, do you think they're going to rally all the coaches and players and say, listen, guys, we've got a problem. Joe Bob Cooter, he quit watching our games. Maybe if we sent a couple athletes over there and got to know him and had a beer and mowed his lawn and became his buddy, maybe he'd stop. They're not doing that. They don't know you. It's never going to give you what you want. They don't even know you exist. got that out of my system. (laughs) You won't hear it for a full another year. But ask them, how long have you been trying to climb this hill? How long have you, how long have you been doing this? And why can't you be satisfied unless you have it? What does contentment look like for you? You have to ask these questions, get them talking so that they could see I'm in a bad place. This isn't working. Can they see it? That's evangelism, by the way. That's Pre-evangelism, some say. I think it's the same thing. Second question is, can they see God as a father? Something might be getting in the way. They might have had a really bad father. They might not even want to talk about it, right? Show them the truest essence of fatherhood that there ever has been in the cosmos between Christ and his father. Take them to John 17, the, the high priestly prayer in the garden pouring out his soul to one he was intimately close to. Show them. Show them how the gospel defines a better family. Show them. And then third, can you paint the picture of assurance that comes with the gospel? There's assurance. Can you give them a view of how they'll never have to experience rejection or be orphaned or left rejected? My friends, this is real assurance. Real assurance. I mean, go back to Mephibosheth again. And again, imagine him leaving this encounter. He probably died. Honestly, I think he thought he was going to his death. But now not only is he alive, he's been gifted with every kingly blessing in the kingdom. And he's never going to lose it. David says, you'll always have this. And there's nothing to earn. There was no one to impress. There's nothing to prove. He simply loved this guy because of his love for another. Listen, if you could hear the voice of the Lord speaking to you through this prism of adoption, God is saying that from this point forward, you have nothing to worry about or ever be anxious over again. This is what he says to his church, that he will love you and nurture you and protect you. And if you get into trouble, you can bring it to him. You'll work on it. He'll work on it with you you will handle it together, but he is here for you. He will never leave you or forsake you or abandon you. He will never disown you. Even if you go astray, he'll be waiting for you. And he will always, always take you back as you are. Go ahead and stand with me. It's a fascinating gospel. And it's a very good God we serve. And listen, we're about to sing a few songs and finish our service out. And if you've been here a long time, you know that this is a time where we take communion. And if you're a Christian or a guest with us, this is a time where you have the freedom to go back during the, during the music and take communion. Like I said, we have the cups back there. And we take these elements in remembrance of what God has done for us and adopting us through the work of Jesus. I want you to remember that he found you as an enemy with an enemy blood running through your veins, like Mephibosheth, a dead dog. And he made us heirs of every treasure in the heavens by rolling his seat up to the table and saying, this is yours and it will always be here. You are secure. You're never going to be replaced or disowned. You will always be home, home. And friends, listen, if you were lost here today and, God is someone that you're looking into, but you would admit you don't love. There is a place where your lying idols go to die. It's the foot of the cross. It's the place we all go to die. It's where we go to leave our life there, the life of where we are the center. And it's where we go to worship a kind father who will never forsake us, who becomes the new center of our life. My question is, is what are you going to do with this kindness? How will you reckon with this love? How will you interact with it? This passage might find you as Mephibosheth, coming before a king with fear, not knowing what to do, knowing that you are a dead dog. And he says, what are you mindful of me for? As the psalmist later says, who is man that you're even mindful of us? But you need to know he's mindful of you specifically today. Today, he's mindful of you. I would challenge you to give your life and enjoy this adoption experience. And just as a point of celebration, there will be a day, friends, where we're going to worship with no family wounds. I know there's a chunk of this room that's been in and out of all kinds of counseling and psychology and psychiatry of every different flavor. We've had imperfect upbringings, and that's going to be eclipsed one day when we will be seated in a perfect family at a banqueting table with a lot of laughter, and a lot of good food, and a lot of parting. You'll have no bitterness in this eternity. You'll have no problem with fathers or fathering. You'll be loved and welcomed, and the seat that you have at this dinner table will always have your name on it forever, and ever, and ever, and ever, and ever, and ever, amen. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for this gospel. Thank you for adopting us. I thank you for calling us close. And Father, I just pray that in this room, as we sing and as we take communion, that we wrestle with a, with a few things. And Lord, that by your spirit, you cause us to see a few things. Where, who are the relationships that we are really, really looking for to speak heavily and say that we are approved? We might be, we might be breaking those relationships. Whether it's a heavy voice or a light voice, who is it that we just want to say you are awesome and you are loved? And then, Father, I pray that you would show us even the problems that we have with assurance. It's, it's easy for us to believe that you like a future version of us. It's very difficult for us to believe that you like the now version of us, the current operating system. But, Father, that this would be a day where you would show us that you are loving the current operating system of us, who we really are right now, and still your Holy Spirit longs to change us. And still you long to change us, not because you want to love us more, but because you want us to love you more. Because you want to build this relationship that way. And finally, Father, we thank you for being Father. Yes, you are King righteous judge you are our victor you are our redeemer our reconciler and you are also father very close very intimate thank you for not resenting us for not leaving us for not abandoning us we thank you for your kindness so lord we worship you as a church of Mephibosheth's that we once were dead dogs and now we have royal blood in our veins and everything we do can be in the light of that. You're so good and we're so thankful. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.